1997 European Grand Prix is one of F1's most famous title showdowns. Jacques Villeneuve and Michael Schumacher went head-to-head -head in a flat-out battle for 47 laps before a controversial collision decided the destiny of that year's World Championship. I'm Glenn Freeman and in this episode of Bring Back V10s, we'll revisit what happened before, during and after that incredible weekend at Jerez, including the trouble Villeneuve found himself in before the finale and of course the huge fallout from Schumacher's failed attempt to take him out. Before we introduce our guests, this is your last chance to get your questions in for our series finale, where we'll be taking your questions on anything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. You can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or if you like what you're hearing and want to leave us a five-star review, feel free to include a question there too. I'm doing my best to get through as many shout-outs as possible to our reviewers. And with the amount we've got coming in at the moment, you're not making it easy. But thanks so much to everyone who has left us a review recently, including Matty73920, Meredith27, Scott Woodwiss, Barbarism, Lauren Jade Ash, and Mark M1988. There are so many more, so I'll just have to keep increasing the number of people we give shout-outs to on each episode to try to keep up. But let's bring in our guests and get on with Haref97. I'm delighted to say we have Karun Chanduk back with us for this one, and we've also got one of our most popular guests from the last series, Jonathan Williams, a man who knows a thing or two about the inner workings of the phenomenal Williams team built by his dad, Frank. Jonathan, welcome back. We last had you on to talk about Juan Pablo Montoya's 2001 season, and people really enjoyed hearing your stories from inside Williams. We've got lots to cover again here from Jerez, but when you think back to the 1997 title decider, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Cool. Uh, I think from a personal point of view, given sort of my age and that I was just getting started in racing back then, it was a huge privilege for me because it was the only time over those uh, 16 world championships that Williams have won to date and the 16 that were won as a family-owned team. It was the only one, whether it be constructors or drivers, in this case, drivers for Jacques, it was the only one that I was present at. So looking back, it was a huge privilege to have been there. And I think in many ways, any team would probably like to win championships the way that Mercedes win them right now, where it's almost a foregone conclusion. Certainly with several races to go, it's a done deal. And that was sort of the case for us the year before in 96. But if you come out of a championship winning it the way in which we won those titles in 97, sort of right down to the wire, heated, bitter, any of those adjectives. It's certainly much sweeter coming out successfully on the other side of that. So I certainly remember in those days, you would still leave the European Grand Prix on a Thursday morning. So getting on a packed charter flight from Luton, I believe, down to uh, Jerez Direct and just nothing but racing people on the plane. I sat next to some McLaren people, one of whom I used to work with in F3000. So there was a real buzz and it was a little bit of sort of, I mean, I'm not quite sure that we, I, mean, I don't think any of us went there thinking that this is the last time that we're going to be competitive, but we knew it was the end of Renault. We knew it was the end of uh, racing with Adrian Newey, sort of uh, led cars, so to speak. So it's sort of, there was certainly something in the air that made it, you, you just knew, it was one of those things where you just felt like something was happening. So to be a part of that and just to sort of witness it firsthand through the weekend was a great experience. And I think it's one of the races that I personally look back most favorably at the uh, 
at having been there and experienced it the whole way through. Yeah, I wasn't there and I look back on it pretty favourably as well. Karim, what about you? What comes to mind immediately when you hear the words Heref 97? Qualifying, 121.072. I mean, the the race <laughs> was massively dramatic, obviously. Um, I remember being a 13-year-old and I had a whole bunch of my mates down. We were in our guest bedroom of my parents' house um, uh, where we were growing up in Madras and, and all just watching this Grand Prix um, because... And honestly, I, I'm quite nervous and excited for this podcast because I'm excited because I think 97 is probably one of my favorite seasons um, of all time. It, it had everything, didn't it? You know, four teams winning races, controversy. I think eight or nine teams got podiums. You had random freak results. Um, but I'm also nervous because I think we could go on and on for what could possibly be the world's <laughs> longest ever podcast here. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot going on. I mean, as you say, I mean, you had the Bridgestone factor, which made, I mean, I think cars like the Pros was a very decent car, for example, but it certainly made other sort of Bridgestone shod teams like Arrows and Stewart highly competitive. And let's not forget the 97 Jordan, the Peugeot powered car, that was a very, very quick race car. And it was sort of driven by two rookie drivers, both of whom had a lot of potential. But I always remember. Sam Michael coming to Williams later, who was at Jordan in 97. And he said to me, I really, because he said, during the winter, we had sort of the big Benson and Hedges driven thing of trying to get Mansell on board Jordan for 97. And he drove the 96 car, which was a bit of a dog. And I think Nigel made his decision not to come back based on the performance of the 96 Jordan. And Sam said, I just wish we could have tested him in the 97 car, because I'm convinced with Nigel Mansell, Jordan could have won races in 97. So kind of another missed aspect of what was already a very layered season. But uh, there was just so much going on. There was just there was script upon script, story upon story, the whole way down the field. Just a, a great year of Formula One. Yeah, it's a great season. One of our listeners actually asked a question about that Mansell-Jordan test recently. So they've got a bonus because they haven't had to wait until okay. the series finale to hear a story I've not heard, actually. I've never heard Sam's perspective yeah. on that one. I'm pretty sure. That's what he told me. It was many years ago, but he, I think Sam just said, I really wish we'd have had, if Nigel had tested the 97 car pre-season, which I think, if Sam, if I recall, he may have declined to do so based upon his experiences in the 96 car. I think Sam said, I think with all due respect to Ralph and Giancarlo, we'd have won races in 97 with Nigel because he was just much higher up the curve where you need to be to win Grand Prix, especially in a season that turned out to be so competitive. Yeah, the idea of Mansell in that car is an enticing one. But looking at the end of 97, we won't go into what happened at the penultimate round of the season in Japan too much because, and Karun will be delighted to hear this for the first time in this episode, that weekend will get its own episode in the future. But it was between the final two races that we finally got confirmation of what the points situation would be between Schumacher and Villeneuve after Williams withdrew its appeal against Villeneuve's exclusion in Japan. Villeneuve triggered a suspended ban when he didn't slow down for yellow flags in final practice at Suzuka. He wasn't the only driver to commit the offence, even Schumacher did as well, but Villeneuve was the only one already on a final warning. Williams appealed, which allowed him to start the race, but he only finished fifth, so when Williams withdrew their appeal after the race, Villeneuve lost two points, moving him from one point ahead of Schumacher to one behind. Looking at the offence itself, Villeneuve explained after the season had finished that he didn't slow down because usually when it happens on a straight, nobody slows down. I thought, oh, it's a straight, and I shot myself in the foot. So, Karun, 
even if it was the case back then that nobody really slowed down for yellow flags on a straight in that kind of situation, if you're in Villeneuve's position and you know you're one more offence away from triggering a ban, he had to have been more aware here in practice at Suzuka, didn't he? Yeah, I guess so. I think, um, you know, you got to play the risk versus the reward, haven't you? And in the situation he was in, taking a gamble with the, with the championship on the line was probably not worth it. But, you know, I, I watched the video back. Um, it's actually in the season review for, for anyone who wants to see it. But they show that shot of free practice. I think it's at the exit of the spoon curve. And there's a card across, all the way across the left-hand side. So there's no real risk to anybody. Um, you know, so I guess you could argue, and Jack's right, uh, it, it's a bit harsh because it was comfortably out of the way on the straight. But, but there you go. Um, you know. It, it, it what unfolded after that was an extraordinary race so I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that um to that podcast i mean at some point by the way we have got to flag that i am doing this podcast with the jacques Villeneuve fan club of the uk the president and vice president are on this podcast i think at what point are you two going to declare that i don't think i need to declare it's been declared in every single episode <laughs> likewise yeah likewise i think everyone i think everyone knows <laughs> yeah, and I've I've got my one one forty three model of Jack's car on my bedside. Um, so, but anyway, let's move on. Um, yeah. <laughs> FAA President Max Mosley said Villeneuve was absolutely mad to do what he did on a lap where he had nothing to gain. And after the Japanese race, he talked about Williams's appeal. Max said Villeneuve risks not only the loss of his two points from Japan, but suspension from Jerez. I can imagine he will only lose those two points if he withdraws the appeal. So that's what Williams did, and Villeneuve spoke to Autosport magazine before Jerez, saying, There was no point in risking being disqualified from the final race as well. Had we won in Japan, then you'd risk trying to keep the points. But for two points, it's better to make sure we are in Jerez. But Jonathan, we know in this era, the FIA took a dim view towards what it considered frivolous appeals. So once Max had said, if you withdraw the appeal, that will be the end of the matter. Was this a no-brainer for Williams? And was there any frustration within the team at Jacques for making the mistake in the first place? Uh, I mean, I, I wasn't sort of physically present in Japan where sort of the origin of the sort of thought that developed after would have come from. But I think, as you said, I think how the team would have reacted to the penalty process post-race would have been to an extent dictated by the result accumulated in that race. So a fifth place as opposed to a win that was the potential. So it was certainly to go in there with a one point deficit. So I think it would have been influenced by that. Uh, I mean, I, my father was never really somebody, I mean, you had to really catch him out. I mean, I know there's a bit of a, a quote attributed to him with regard to Damon's collision with Michael at the 95 British Grand Prix. But my father, even privately, very cautious about being critical, not just of drivers, but of any team member, any team colleague. And in the case of Patrick, it would usually be in the moment. So again, not being present. I don't certainly recall in the days that followed and the build up to the final in Jerez, there being any sort of cloud or hangover from that. And I think probably because we all knew the personality that Jacques was, and you in terms of what he brought personality-wise to the cockpit, his approach to racing. And as a team, you certainly 
benefited from those traits a lot, lot more than you lost out, as was the rare case with this uh, indiscretion with the yellow flag in the uh, warm-up for that particular race in Japan. So certainly being in the factory in the days leading up and then being in Jerez itself for those four or five days, from my point of view and my recollection, 23 years, hey, snow, nothing. And we should say that after the season, the World Motorsport Council changed the rules around these penalties as it felt that a ban that could cost a driver of the championship was too much. So the new rule that was put in place at the end of 97 allowed the stewards to send the driver to the back of the grid or delete any number of his qualifying times on the weekend in question. We'll briefly drift away from the championship narrative here for a moment. Uh, with so much going on around the title decider, we won't spend masses of time looking at other stories in F1 uh, at the end of 97, but there are a couple that are worth a mention. Firstly, it was before this race that F1 Racing magazine revealed that McLaren had an extra brake pedal in its cars in late 97. This was discovered by photographer Darren Heath, who'd noticed earlier in the year that the McLaren's rear brakes were glowing on acceleration out of corners. So when the McLarens broke down at the Nürburgring, Heath managed to get his camera into the cockpit of Mika Hakkinen's abandoned car, thanks to Mika leaving his steering wheel off, and he got a shot of the extra pedal. David Coulthard put his steering wheel back on, so his version didn't get snapped. Uh, and because DC still used a foot clutch in 97, his car had a fourth pedal. Uh, McLaren called the system brake steer, as the idea was for the drivers to use the pedal to slow the inside rear wheel in corners to bring the nose in. Hakkinen and Coulthard both worked out independently that it could be used to control wheel spin as well. On the original system they had in 97, the team had to decide in advance which side to apply the extra brake pedal to based on the circuit layout. And in 98, the drivers could adjust it on track using a switch before it got banned. But Karun, this was a, a genius idea from McLaren. What did you make of this when you heard about the uh, the mystery pedal? It's just F1 at its best, isn't it? You know, it's it's like it's it's like active suspension or the fan car or you know DAS we've seen in recent times. You know, some of them give much more lap time than others, but they're all these out of the box genius ideas that F1 engineers are, are brilliant at doing, and I think. Um, I remember speaking to DC about this quite a bit um, one day when I was working with Channel 4 and we, we got onto the subject of, of innovation in F1 and he said that you know the lap time game was was really really significant because you could properly get the car's trajectory set up um, you know at an earlier part of the corner and, and, and carry uh, you know good apex speeds through it so they, they were gaining proper lap time from it. Obviously when it got banned, um, I think it was after Brazil in 98, wasn't it? But they, the car carried on still being very, very competitive. So it wasn't the be all and end all, um, but there was definitely lap time gain from it. So yeah, just excellent innovation from McLaren, I think. Another piece of news that broke prior to the finale was Gerhard Berger announcing his retirement from F1. He'd already lost his Benetton drive for 98 earlier in the year when the team took up an option on Giancarlo Fisichella. And it was speculated that Berger didn't have any options to stay on the grid, but he claimed there was no shortage of offers he chose to turn down. Reflecting on the end of his career on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast with Tom Clarkson, Berger said that by this point in 97, his time was over and he was not feeling healthy or happy in 1997. But he also said he'd had problems with Benetton boss Flavio Briatore 
who tried to prevent him coming back mid-season after he missed three races due to a sinus problem that required surgery. Karun, looking at Berger by the end of 1997, do you think it was the right time for him to call it a day? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, mainly because he himself said he wasn't healthy or happy at that point. Um, and when you get to that stage, it's, you know, there's no point carrying on. There was a there was a wave of young drivers coming into F1, wasn't there? Around that time, you had the likes of Trulli and Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher. Um, you know, people like Jensen and Alex Wirtz weren't, weren't far away. Um, obviously, Montoya was still probably three years away from that, um, you know, say, if if Gerhard carried on in 98. So I think it was probably the right time. You know, he'd had a good innings, hadn't he? He'd, he'd won races, he'd driven for some great teams, um, had had a, a great career, made an awful lot of money uh, along the way, and then has, has gone on to build a good post-driving career, um, you know, around various various other things. So, yeah, I think it was probably the right time. Getting back to the main event now, and of course, there was plenty of fighting talk on both sides ahead of the title showdown. Villeneuve said he couldn't wait for the weekend, adding, Michael's had all the luck he's going to have and he knows it, so I'm feeling great. Schumacher said, this year we gained from the weak moments of Williams, but they still have the best car. Schumacher's teammate Eddie Irvine, who'd been so influential at Suzuka, joined in saying, it could go either way, but if you're a betting man, you'd have to go with Michael. Villeneuve's got the better car, Michael's the better driver. Now the pressure's much more on Jacques. Jonathan, what was the feeling inside Williams? Jacques was a point behind, so was he the underdog? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think one point isn't insurmountable. If you're going to be behind by anything, one point is sort of the best, the best point. Uh, I think at that stage, we just had such momentum and experience when it came to those situations, those high pressure championship situations. We had a lot of faith in Jack. We knew we had a very strong car and, you know, with all due respect, because there's no if in F1, but we still sort of had, as you alluded to with Michael's quote there, we had left quite a bit on the table. I mean, it probably should have been a little bit with that car, the FW19, it should have been a little bit closer to FW18 1996 performance than it actually was, not total dominance like the 18 was. So I think we were pretty confident. And I remember when I walked into the paddock on Thursday afternoon, Christian Conson, who was my, uh, who was sort of my father's opposite number and prime contact at Renault, he just walked up to me and gave me this big embrace, then rested his hands on either shoulder and literally shook me and said, we are here to win. We are here to win. We are here to win, literally three times in a row. And I was like, if I wasn't awake, I am now. It was sort of like one of the, so I, I think we just sort of, we knew where we were. We, we had faith in Jack. We also, after perhaps not the strongest start to the season, Imola and Monaco qualifying aside, we had Frentzen really performing very, I mean, I think he was coming in I think he'd been on the podium for the previous sort of five or six races leading up to Jerez and the uh, close runner up to Michael in Japan had sealed the uh, Constructors' Championship for us for a ninth time. So I think we felt confident. It it wasn't like we had a a six or seven point deficit where it becomes, you know, you become much more boxed into a corner. We had strength, we had experience and we had options. So therefore, I think that we had the confidence that you need without sort of knowing that we were going to win it because nobody knows going in. Another thing we were hearing a lot from the Williams camp at this time was talk of if Schumacher would take Villeneuve out at Jerez. 
This was only three years on from Schumacher colliding with Damon Hill at Adelaide to win the 94 title, which we covered back in Series 1. Villeneuve said, I hope it's not going to be a case of Michael taking me off like we've seen in the past, something he repeated at any given opportunity in the build-up to the weekend. Patrick Head brought up Adelaide as well, calling that collision with Damon Hill a deliberate removal of a competitor, but he felt Villeneuve was perfectly capable of beating Michael. And Villeneuve's manager Craig Pollock said uh, Jacques was extremely concerned about the possibility of Schumacher, his brother Ralph or Irvine taking him off. Villeneuve's engineer at the time, Jock Clear, said in James Allen's book about Schumacher called The Edge of Greatness, that by the end of the year, they'd worked out that Schumacher was vulnerable if you put him under a huge amount of pressure, with the mistake he made at Adelaide being an example of that. A few years ago, Villeneuve did an interview initially for an F1 DVD where drivers talked about their most memorable race, and that subsequently got uploaded to the F1 YouTube channel. It's a mega 10-minute clip called 20 Years On, Jacques Villeneuve on her F97, and I'd thoroughly recommend it. In that clip, Villeneuve says it was a deliberate strategy to keep bringing up what had happened with Hill in the past. He said, we must have spent the last two or three weeks just mentioning, reminding people of those accidents, that Michael was good at taking people off to win championships. It was a way to put pressure on Michael. So there's some mind games there, Jonathan, but was there a genuine fear at Williams that Schumacher might repeat what he'd done at Adelaide? I would say yes, although to be fair, we were in the sort of early stages, if you like, of how that particular aspect of Michael's approach. I mean, a lot of the examples that build that image of him were to come at this point. I mean, we had Adelaide 94, but of course, Jerez 97 was days or hours away at this point. And then a few more kicked in, Monaco 20, uh, 2006, Hungary 2010, Coulthard a few months later in Buenos Aires, 98, all of those things were like in the future. So you only really had the reference of Adelaide 94, but they say history has a tendency or has a habit to repeat itself. So I, I think so, but it wasn't sort of, I don't recall it being sort of a fear or sort of an apprehension that was really clouding everyone's approach. And I think part of that was because in, I mean, with no disrespect to Damon, I'm, I'm just saying sort of a different bit, in, in Jack, you had a very sort of different driver and there was quite a bit of a street fighter. I mean, in terms of the way that Jacques, I mean, as we know, how aggressive he was in champ car in 94, 95, and then some of the moves he pulled in F1 in 96 and 97. So I think we sort of had a bit of a, a tit for tat on that one. We actually had somebody that if that scenario came his way, somebody a little bit like we expected with Montoya later down the line, we had that sort of fighter, somebody that was actually sort of in a very, very good natural position to react and handle that in the moment. And as Sunday afternoon proved, we did. So I don't, yes, I, I think, yes, it was sort of part of our psyche, but it was nowhere near dominating sort of how we were going through the weekend and thinking about the outcome. The games continued once the weekend was underway. Irvine held Villeneuve up a few times in practice and eventually Jacques decided he'd had enough. The cars came into the pits together and before Villeneuve's could be pushed back into the garage, he leapt out and marched down to the Ferrari pit where Jacques said afterwards that he told Irvine to stop being an idiot. Irvine laughed it off and said he wasn't bothered but Villeneuve says this was a calculated move rather than him losing his cool. He says, it looks like I overreacted, but in a way you had to overreact to show that you wouldn't let it happen. That caught Eddie by surprise, and I think it caught the mechanics by surprise as well. It was just a way of bringing the attention again 
on what games Ferrari and Michael and Eddie and the whole clan could play. Jock Clear felt those games by Ferrari backfired because Jack used the anger to his advantage. Uh, Jock said Ferrari were probably sniggering that Jack had lost it, that Eddie had got to him, but that put that little bit extra into Jack, who said, right, now it's personal. Karun, this is very famous footage of Villeneuve strolling or marching down the pit lane, not something we see very often in F1. What did you make of it? Well, it's really funny you mention it because it, it was, um, I'm going to slightly go off beat here, but in Silverstone 2008, I was racing for a, a GP2 team which Jonathan partly owned, and I got held up in qualifying by this driver called Andy Suchek. And I immediately came in the pit lane and I thought, I'm going to do a Villeneuve. And at the end of qualifying, <laughs> I jumped out of the car and stomped down the pit lane. And as, as I got there, I thought, well, what am I going to say now apart from <laughs> you've screwed my qualifying? Oh, well, it's too late. You yeah. can't actually do anything about it. And I just stood there and shouted some form of abuse. <laughs> I tried to say something and hurl a bit of abuse. Couldn't really think of anything apart from you screwed me up and then walked off. Um, so, yeah, that moment of Villeneuve, as you said, walking down the pit lane towards Eddie, very famous footage. And it, it stuck in my mind for sure. I mean, it's um, it, it, it was it's just part of the drama, wasn't it? It's just great theatre. It's just part of this whole build up to um, to a frankly extraordinary finale in Formula One history. Yeah. There's serious business got going on Saturday afternoon, of course, which Karun has already mentioned, because this has got to be one of the most famous qualifying sessions of all time. Villeneuve, Schumacher and Heinzhold Frentzen all setting the same time of 1 minute 21.072. Villeneuve getting pole as a result of posting the time first. Frentzen said afterwards that the timing should have a fourth number after the dot. And Villeneuve claims that apparently somebody knows what the next digit is. Uh, and who was therefore fastest, but nobody was ever told. Jonathan, did Williams ever know, at least between its own two drivers, whose lap was quicker? Uh, I don't think so. I've never, I've never actually heard. I, I don't believe so. Because I think they do, Johnny, they? because I had a conversation with Jock Clear about okay. this. We were reminiscing. Um, I think it was it was last season at some point, and. Um, we got talking about about Heret 97. Obviously, Jock now is at Ferrari. And I said to him, I said, Jock, now that you're there, you should try and dig up the the Schumacher data from Heret 97 Quali. And I'll speak to someone like Jonathan Williams <laughs> at Williams Heritage and see if we can get the Williams data. And let's see if we can actually, you know, overlay and see who ended up first. Um, and Jock said, Jock said to me that he, um, back in the day, they had actually looked at it um, with some help from Farm and worked out that the grid order was actually in the right order it would have been if um, if you looked at. I can't think if it was GPS data or if it was a fourth decimal. But I think it it's was, the fourth decimal. There yeah. was some metric. I think it's the fourth decimal. There was yeah. some. Okay, yeah, there was some metric, but Jock was was pretty sure that it would have ended up in that same grid order. <laughs> That's cool. That's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, as you say, Glenn, it's Jacques who has said about the fourth decimal, and I would imagine that he and Jock have shared some memories and some insights on that. So, uh, but no, I don't, I don't believe I've ever come across any sort of data. I mean, it's, it'll be there somewhere in terms of the data from those two cars, those two laps, but I've personally never come across There's it. There's a feature in that, Glenn. We've got to go... 
try and get yeah. these um get yeah. these guys to get, dig out the data for us. Yeah, we'll do a bring back V10 special on it as well. Now, obviously, that <laughs> three-way fight at the front was incredible, but we've got to look at the man who was fourth on the grid because poor Damon Hill was only 0.058 adrift of pole and didn't even make it onto the front row. Damon had to avoid Ukio Katayama's spun Minardi at the final corner on his best lap, so Arrow's, Arrow's boss, Tom Walkinshaw, reckoned he should have been on pole as he lost two temps there. Hill pointed out that he was six seconds quicker than he'd been in pre-season at Jerez with the Arrows, and he said it was no coincidence that he was up the front again on a track almost as twisty as the Hungaro ring where he should have won. He'd also pushed Bridgestone for a more adventurous tyre construction for the final race, as in the previous races, Bridgestone had been bringing a tyre that was better suited to Prost, and that didn't work at all for Arrows. So Karun, have you got some uh, sympathy for your buddy and colleague Damon here? Because among all the hysteria about the three-way tie and the title fight, his brilliant lap was largely ignored. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for him. Um, you know, it, it was an excellent lap. I mean, Damon, uh, it's, it's just a strange year, isn't it? I mean, there's a whole there's a whole series of podcasts probably on the Damon Hill 1997 saga, um, you know, from barely qualifying in Melbourne to nearly winning in Budapest. Um and yeah, a lot of it was dictated by by Bridgestone. I think some of the you know the Bridgestone performance. And, and now when we look at it, you know, you look at what happened next. But I think the the results from Arrows and Prost that year, um, and to some extent, I guess the wet performance from Barrichello at Monaco led people like McLaren and and Benetton going towards Bridgestone because they could see that these lesser teams were still so competitive that they were going to be mega. Um, so, yeah, no, a lot of sympathy for Damon, actually, especially I didn't know the part about the, the Katayama spin. That, I mean, could you imagine if the three, those three guys were tied and they were second, third and fourth behind Damon's arrows? That would have been extraordinary. Let's get into the race then. Because Villeneuve gets wheel spin from pole position. So Schumacher, who was on new tyres versus the used tyres the Williams drivers had, bolted into the lead. Villeneuve and Frentzen then divvered alongside each other at the first corner before Frentzen finally went through. Villeneuve says Williams had discussed millions of strategies based on how the race might play out, but him making a bad start and having Frentzen alongside him at turn one wasn't one of them, so they weren't sure who should go through. Jack said it was confusing, but in the end he decided to let Frentzen go to attack Schumacher. Once it became clear Frentzen couldn't do anything about the Ferrari, he moved over, although in the process that enabled Schumacher to double his lead from two seconds to four. Now, Jonathan, I think you said that you were watching the first few laps of the race from the first corner. So I guess you saw all this play out in front of your own eyes. Should Jack have just got on with it at the start rather than being worried about what to do about Frentzen? Uh, I mean, I guess we have to take him at his word because he's the one in the cockpit. I mean, nobody can sort of be in that scenario more than he can. And I guess it takes us, what, 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds to talk about it. He's got to make a decision in a fraction of a moment. And I guess had it have been uh, a car that he wasn't uh, aligned to, in this case, his teammate, he might have been a touch more aggressive. But I mean, you're looking at a guy with whom you've got a free pass. You know that any time you want to get past that particular guy, that car, you make the phone call and you're gone. And that happened a handful of laps into the race anyway. So uh, 
Interesting that they talked about millions of options and that one didn't come up because it's probably only about five. <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's just being that Yeah, I, I know what he means. And uh, yeah, but no, I, I, think, uh, I, I think in that moment, it was something he wasn't quite prepared for. And it's a split moment decision. And it's sort of somebody that you need, that probably is, as we'll talk about, it's, it's, it's a car that he actually needs to come into play for himself, being his teammate and his tail gunner later in the race so he's probably not too concerned and I think as long as he actually I mean I think in that scenario you want to make it through that first corner that first lap unscathed so to be in third position with a very competitive car a car that's been pretty much on the money all weekend it, at that point it wasn't something to really cry about but it was maybe a touch concerning because my sort of point of view of standing uh, up at term one was that every time Ferrari had sort of gotten ahead of us in races that year they'd sort of stayed ahead of us and whereas it was sort of vice versa the races that we'd won we'd sort of apart from the the Damon race in Budapest where we were a long way behind up until the point that we won it but uh quite a few of those races in 97 that we won we were sort of there we were always right there in the pound seat but the races that Ferrari won they sort of got ahead of us and stayed ahead of us quite quite comfortably but Johnny did you guys I mean, I know you were standing up at turn one yourself watching it, but when you watch the race back, you know, that that shot of the cars coming up at the first corner, it does look like Jacques is almost surprised oh, yeah. to see Frenz in there, isn't it? It, it? Is, yeah. it sort of caught him out. Yeah, cold. it is. I mean, if, from the elevated, I guess, helicopter shot, I mean, it's almost, it's almost surprising just how obliging the sort of 23 cars behind them actually are because there's a real moment of hesitation. Again, it's all split second and you process it a little bit slow when you're watching it but yeah it is it, it's a very odd moment of body language between two cars two teammates in that scenario uh first corner first lap what five six seconds after the start in a championship decider it's a very odd bit of body language there's certainly after you no after you it's a little bit like sort of two people at a, at a crossroads isn't it in a supermarket car park and nobody quite knows who to go first so it, it, it is odd but uh but yeah, and obviously this is what I learned later watching at the outside of turn one. It was all over very, very quickly. And I sort of had quite a lateral view across to them because it's quite a, it, they're, they're just about to come up a hill there, I think. And if you head into the gravel trap, you are beginning to go uphill just a touch. And then there's a big hill behind. So it was, I didn't sort of have the view then that I had later. I'm, I'm with you on the, uh, the fact that they just, they talked about millions of possible start scenarios, but. Jack loses a place and a half off the line wasn't one that they'd uh, <laughs> they'd thought about. No, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After Frentzen drops behind Villeneuve, he dropped his pace significantly, allowing the top two to get away, with the McLarens, Hill and Irvine all bunching up behind him. That meant that when Schumacher and Villeneuve pitted, they rejoined third and fifth respectively, with Frentzen in the lead, lapping two seconds off his earlier pace, with Hakkinen's McLaren second and Coulthard's McLaren fourth between the title contenders. Coulthard was the first McLaren to pit, keeping him out of Villeneuve's way, but the extra lap Hakkinen did behind Frentzen meant the McLarens swapped places during these stops, and that would be crucial later on. Frentzen's backing up allowed Villeneuve to close right onto Schumacher's tail, and he even had an early look into the dry sack hairpin at one point, but wasn't close enough to make it stick. Frentzen pitted on lap 28, and then it was game on in a straight fight between the title contenders. 
Ross Braun said in his book that Frentzen screwed Michael during this phase, but he did admit Williams were giving us back some of what we'd given them with Irvine in the past. So Ross said it was fair enough. But Jonathan, these these sort of games were almost kind of un-Williams, considering this was a team that didn't normally even like team orders, um, let alone these kind of games interfering with opponents. But was it a case of the lengths Ferrari were going to with Irvine meant Williams had no choice but to play them at their own game? I think so. I mean, as you say, team orders never worked too well for us. I mean, the 1981 Brazilian Grand Prix and then the most of the PK Mansell relationship. But I guess that was when sort of it was either advantage one or advantage another. Whereas in this case, Heinz Harold was pretty secure in his position in terms of his championship position. Our constructors were sealed, his seat for next year, all of those things. So I guess a more obliging situation. So in terms of adjusting and structuring Heinz Harold's race plan to be that was, I mean, there was absolutely nothing more, there was more better way to use that resource, if you like. So it was a little bit un-Williams-like, but I think, as you say, we were probably, I think the sort of Irvine tactic two weeks before in the race in Japan, which I got to say was actually very impressive to watch, especially the choreography of how they leaped him from fourth to second, I think, through those very quick S's in sector one. So I think we'd sort of been schooled a little bit two weeks before, and we knew that more of that would certainly be coming from Ferrari and and I think we're getting into later, perhaps Ferrari-powered cars that, were paint, that weren't painted red. So I think so, yeah. So it, it was certainly something that isn't in my father and Patrick's way of going racing. But you know, one thing that this game teaches us is, is that you have, to, you have to do everything to win. And that means you have to use every available tool or tactic to win. So why not? And as I mean, there's no spoiler alert, everyone knows the outcome. We actually got what, what we came for, which was the driver's championship for Jacques. So... And, and, and the bonus was a few weeks later, Heinz Harrell was actually second in the, in the drivers' championship, so uh, which he was mathematically well out of before before that weekend. So, yeah, I mean, a little bit unusual, but I think in in those circumstances, I, mean, I think you would have more be surprised if it wasn't a tactic we adopted than the fact that we did. Well, let's talk about that Ferrari-powered car that wasn't red, because Ferrari did get some payback in the tactics game a couple of laps later. When Schumacher lapped the Ferrari-powered Sauber of Norberto Fontana, who then pulled back onto the racing line and held Villeneuve up for the next four corners. This cost Villeneuve more than two seconds, taking the gap out to 3.1. And the reason I say this was Ferrari getting payback is because nine years later, when Schumacher announced he was retiring from F1 in 2006, Fontana decided it was time to reveal he'd been told by Jean Todt to get in Villeneuve's way during this race. Fontana said in a magazine interview in Argentina, it was two or three hours before the race and Jean Tot entered the Sauber motorhome. He was very direct, saying, by strict order of Ferrari, it is necessary to block Villeneuve if he finds you on the track. Peter Sauber denied this was true and Ferrari called it nonsense, although Jock Clear didn't have a problem with it because he said Williams would have done the same if they had that level of influence over another team. Karun. Give us the driver's perspective. If you'd been put in Fontana's position and been told to hold someone up uh, in that way by Ferrari, would you have any second thoughts about doing it? No. Uh, at the end of the day, I think, you know, in those situations, the smaller teams are pawns, aren't they, in the bigger picture of it. Um, I also don't blame Jean Todd. Um, if he, you know, as much as 
you, you said Peter Salva denied it, but if Jean Todt did make that, um, you know, make that, shall we say, request, <laughs> um, I, I don't blame him because, you know, when you're fighting for the World Championship, you have to use every, every little bit um, that you've got in your armory to try and do it. And if it means you can use the B, your B teams or your junior teams or customer, whatever, um, you've got to do it. And as a driver, Fontana, you know, he's he's just a small cog in what's happening in this in this bigger wheel. And, you know, if you ever get a chance to do a favor for Ferrari, um, you don't say no. You know, you might end up with a road car for a weekend or something yeah. as, a, as a thank you. I mean, I'm, as you say, I mean, when you're asked to do something and in terms of the benefits it may have, the opportunities. I mean, I'm, I'm good friends with Mika Salo and he's told me a few times that it was so tempting just to stick a bit of a finger up at Hockenheim 99 and just drive into the distance and win that Grand Prix, which, but he said to this day, well, I and mean, this conversation was a few years ago, he said to this day, nearly every opportunity I guess, bar the Toyota one that came after that has always been at the instigation of Ferrari, the sort of Formula One opportunities post-99, the GT opportunities post-99, all of that would have gone in a moment. So they probably would have put somebody else in for the remaining four races of Michael's absence that summer. So yeah, you, as Karun said, you're part of a much bigger machine, the sort of investment that these teams make uh, for the, to try and uh, build and uh, achieve their objective of winning at the highest level you're going to use whatever, whatever you can and whatever sort of resource or ally you can. I mean, it's, I mean, all's fair in love and war, I guess. And Formula One certainly fits nicely into that. Interestingly, Fontana wasn't very happy about it because he said afterwards, Schumacher never thanked me for it. And as they lost the championship, Todd never spoke to me again. He believes it also cost him an F1 drive for 98 as he was close to getting a deal with Tyrrell. But when British American Tobacco bought Tyrrell and Villeneuve's manager Craig Pollock was put in charge for 98, he gave Fontana the thumbs down and he never raced in F1 again. I, I have to say it was a very dramatic way of blocking us. If memory serves, he looked like he was on the world's fastest warming up lap. He was literally doing the big tyre warm up flat out down the back straight in front of Jacques. And I think there was a little bit of chatter, shall we say, but you can't really break or decipher all of it in our garage when that came up on the monitors. I mean, it literally was the world's fastest tire warm-up you'd ever seen, like flat out weaving down the straight. So he had to be fair to him. He made the effort. So I, I can perhaps see why he's a little bit miffed at that because he did certainly, well, he, he obliged. He totally obliged on that one. Yeah, he committed to the move. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Schumacher and Villeneuve made their final pit stops on laps 43 and 44, respectively. And this was the point that Villeneuve decided he had to go for the win. He reckoned he had three laps of peak tyre performance uh, to get the job done. At the same time, Schumacher was following instructions from Ferrari to bring his tyres in gently, as Ferrari was concerned about tyre wear towards the end of the race. This combined to create the perfect storm on lap 48. Villeneuve got a great run onto the back straight, and he said he'd seen earlier in the race how much later he could break than Schumacher into the hairpin. Villeneuve said, I had to surprise him, which meant pulling out at the last moment possible when he wasn't looking in his mirrors. He jumped on the brakes and that's when I pulled out and went to the inside. When I got next to him and he hadn't turned in on me yet, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, wow, he didn't actually run into me. And then half a second later, I felt a big jolt and I thought, oh, no, OK, he did run into me. 
Schumacher's right front wheel slammed into the side pod of Villeneuve's car, sending the Ferrari into the gravel and out of the race while the Williams continued. So Jonathan, before we dissect that moment in more detail, quite simply, what was the reaction like in the Williams pit and garage at that point? Uh, mixed, I think, in terms of people's experiences and roles, I, which you can again catch on the footage. Uh, you can see a lot of the, the Villeneuve entourage, shall we call them, getting massively excited and euphoric, all, all clustered around my father's monitor station, at which point my father was probably disturbed by that. I thought it was, you know, you can see my father like mouthing shush and shut up. I think for the, tr for the professionals, the mechanics, the technicians, there was still a job to be done. So I think there was just a little bit of a, a little bit of a sort of recognition of that moment. But the key thing was, was that that was uh, the gentleman who had a grandstand view to all that was Frentzen, and that was his in-lap. So, of course, most of our guys were out in the box anyway or going into the box for the pit stop. And I remember on the radio, Frentzen just wouldn't shut up, giving a running commentary of what he'd seen. If he was saying, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. He's done it. He's done it. He's tried to take Shaq off. I think Shaq's car's broken. Oh, my, I can't. Yeah, Heinz in this lap confirmed. Oh, I think it's okay. Shaq's speeding up. Shaq's speeding up. Heinz in this lap procedure, all these little things. Oh, no, no, he's slowing, he's slowing again. What should I do? Can I pass him? Can I pass him? It's like Heinz in this lap. So, and I think that was actually why he then basically drove through about four pit boxes because he got so, he got so lost in the moment. It was spotted on the data. He'd forgotten to operate something uh, in the cockpit for being in the pit lane. And he was shouted at halfway down the pit lane to do it, glanced down, went for the button, looked up, and there was somebody in blue holding an arrow right next to him, which was, I believe, for Gerhard Berger coming in. So in a complete panic, he just turned the steering wheel left into the Benetton pits, and I think drove through the McLaren and the Ferrari pits and arrived in our box with, with about two or three wheel guns underneath the car. So actually, there was a big lot of something almost unrelated going on, and it was just so, yes, yeah, so I kind of remember it in those two blocks, the sort of... Uh, Villeneuve entourage, all the people watching the race with my father getting incredibly loud and excited and air punching and whooping, which annoyed my father. And then I just remember the whole sort of Frentzen incident, which was sort of much funnier. And of course, I think in those days of uh, post-race press releases, that bit of like printed A4 that came out, I think Frentzen, as he would do, that kind of interesting humour he had, he said, yes, I heard a rumour that, that Benetton had cheaper fuel, so I thought I would mm -hmm. stop there or something. So, But he said, but I, I remember because I was standing at the front of the garage and I saw him coming through the Ferrari box with all the wheel guns and my brain connected. We've just had a collision, which has probably settled the championship with a Ferrari and that Ferrari's crashed out. We've now just trashed their pit box, which, and I didn't know for a few seconds, it wasn't their pit box, I expected a bit of a NASCAR pit crew brawl at that stage. I thought it was going to be this kind of like mass infusion of like red and blue overalls, like brawling on, on the uh, apron, because that was where my brain went, because I hadn't actually seen that he'd actually come in through the Benetton pits. And it, I think it was Benetton's wheel guns that he'd actually dragged down in, in, into our box. So that was where my brain was for about two or three seconds. I thought this is about to kick off because it's all happened in about 50 seconds. We've crashed a Ferrari, well, not we, but... For, we've kind of been involved in this. The mic was crashed out. We're still in. We've just trashed their pit box. And, and then I kind of like calmed down and realized, no, it wasn't the Ferrari. He'd gone through their box, but he hadn't actually taken anything with it. He'd gone through the Benetton box because their wheel guns were all out because they were expecting a pit stop. So it was, 
yeah, it was a, it was a bit, it was a pretty packed two minutes or whatever it was, but yeah, there was a lot going on. So I'm sure there was a lot more going on than I spotted, but yeah, those, those are my elements of that sort of, uh, that moment of the race. You're absolutely right about that footage of your, your dad as well. He looks really unimpressed with all the jumping and shouting that's going on around him. Oh, my, my mother used to joke that he's actually, he used to come home happier from a Grand Prix if we'd basically been lapped. If, we, if we'd finished first and second and we used to congratulate him, say, yes, but, you know, the Matt McLaren's getting closer and I think we're in trouble. It's like we just finished first and second. And then when we sort of came home and gave him a hard time about sort of having a double DNF and say, I think that's really unfair. I think there was some good performance. Like, which way around are we getting this? So I can imagine that a whole load of people who were basically into, who were like in his personal space going absolutely nuts when there was, there was still an awful lot to happen at that point of the race. Yeah. He wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. Yeah. He, 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 that's, that's certainly out of his, out of his comfort zone, having that going on around him in a Grand Prix. I uh, I vividly remember. Uh, I just had uh, shades of Adelaide '94, and I just thought I was a Damon Hill fan in '94. I was obviously a Jack fan by '97. I just thought he's done it again. Um, and I didn't watch. This is an amazing confession. I didn't watch this race live. What? Because uh, I no. I was. <laughs> this is appalling. Was, you are never yeah. allowed to talk about Jacques Villeneuve again, no, ever. I I was uh, I was bench warming for my under 12s football team. Uh, and the, the guy who gave us a lift to the match, <clears throat> his dad uh, put, the, put the race on the radio at the, at the start and said, oh, Schumacher's in the lead. That'll be it. He'll win it. And I said, like, can you turn that off? I'm watching this later. Um, <laughs> so when it happened, yeah, I, I was hysterical. And uh, I think my mum called my dad out of the room and said, what's the matter with him? Like, <laughs> he's going to win the championship. And uh, but I, ju I just thought I, I thought it had happened. It happened again. Now. Fortunately, Schumacher's car had an onboard camera fitted because uh, Frentzen's did as well. But this was back in the day where the TV directors had to switch the signal on and Frentzen's camera wasn't on at the time, but Schumacher's was. So let's revisit what that onboard showed. And because I'm too lazy to write this bit myself, we'll use Villeneuve's description <laughs> as he captured it perfectly. Uh, Jacques says, when we get to the corner and he sees me on the inside, he actually turns left. And this is for a right-hander because he's surprised I'm there. And once he realizes I'm there and he's losing the championship, you see him turn again very aggressively after he's already tried to avoid me. So you could see that was just his reaction. And he did it badly because he's the one who got stuck and you could see he was flustered. So like I said, there were shades of Adelaide 94 in this, none more so than when Schumacher then stood on a wall next to the track and was looking up the circuit to see if Villeneuve would come round again. Of course, when he did that in 94 to see if Damon Hill had continued, the Williams never made it back around. But this time it did. And you can see the resignation in Schumacher's face that it's probably all over. So, Karun, just looking at Jacques' description of Michael's onboard there, what did you make of the incident? And even the first time you see that replay, could there be any doubt that Schumacher had driven into him on purpose? No, I don't think so. Um, you know... And I think the most telling part is when you hear that, you know, Michael went back to the pits, went to the pit wall and saw Ross Braun and, you know, really angry about how he felt they should be penalizing Jacques. And Ross actually had to calm him down and say, I think you need to watch it back because it doesn't it doesn't quite look like how you think it looks. Um, 
and, and it, you know, but I think for, for any any objective viewer watching from the outside, Jacques absolutely right. There's two turns of the wheel there. You know, he does this, you know, Michael does this sort of small turn. Then he suddenly sees Jacques coming. I mean, Jacques, let's be honest, Jacques also, it was a bit of a lunge. It, it, you know, he came from some way back, but he was there. You know, he, he'd done the hard work to gain the track position and get himself at a point where when they did make contact, um, you know, Jacques was, had his nose in front. Um, and and that, that's undeniable. It certainly was a lunge, but I mean, I mean, I think when the contact took place, it certainly, to a limited extent, but still so, it did break Jacques' traction. So the fact that he still navigated the corner within the white line, never went onto the grass, let alone the gravel. So I think had there not have been contact, it would have been, I mean, it, it, of course, it would have been much cleaner than ultimately was. But I mean, I think it was, it, it was certainly, and of course it was rehearsed as well. I mean, from what Jacques said about his understanding of Michael's breaking points. So yeah, I mean, it's, it was, I mean, it's just sort of the moment that it created, I think is just sort of what sort of makes it very exciting and still very talkable 23 and a bit years later. Or 20. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it was, it was a lunge, but it was easily there. I mean, it was, it, it was just typical Villeneuve, I think. I mean, he was exceptional at that type of racing. I mean, in the prime of his career, there were very few better as, as far as I'm concerned. It was a bit like um, Montoya at Interlagos 2001, wasn't it? Where it just seemed to sort of catch Michael off guard. Yeah. Um, yes. And it, it, in, in, in similar circumstances, you know, Williams lunging up the inside, Michael ending up, okay, on that occasion, they didn't actually make contact, but he ended up in the grass um, at the CNS. So I think, you know, there, there's, there's some parallels to that where he just didn't expect the lunge to come. Um, and then there was a bit of a panic turn almost. I think Jacques summed it up quite well, actually, where, you know, he's he's caught Michael by surprise. And then there's that second aggressive turn, which is which is the panic turn. It's interesting. Going back to Montoya at Brazil in 2001, I have seen it, but I haven't seen it for a long time. So I don't think it's really sort of a strong narrative. But there's a quote somewhere from Damon where he says, Michael surprised me at how obliging he was with that one, which I think implies he simply supplied Michael at that point, didn't go into the like, let's take him out sort of mode. I mean, there's a little bit of a, a subtle sort of comment from which Damon made, I think, watching that race. I'm sort of, Michael, caught, Michael caught me by surprise at how obliging he was at Brazil in 2000. I mean, almost being pushed off the track by Juan Pablo at a critical restart and losing the lead. But uh, yeah. complete, complete sidebar for the uh, listeners who were. Who yeah. were listening to us from earlier on, but I texted Damon to say, did you know you were only 0 0.058 off pole and fourth on the grid in Herrera? So he's just come back with, I know, crazy. Something must have been fishy with the timing that day. <laughs> so there you go, a little, little sidebar treat there from Damon. I'll ask him how much time he thinks he lost with Katiyama. I will <laughs> stay tuned in another 10 minutes and then we'll get the answer. Now four people on this. <laughs> <laughs> Now, after the collision, Villeneuve started nursing the car as he wasn't sure if he had damage. He said on the radio he was worried about the suspension as the car felt strange in right-handers. In fact, the main thing wrong with the car was that the battery had been knocked loose and it was hanging on by its connectors. So it was a good job that Villeneuve was driving carefully. He said he was being gentle on the brakes and not using the curbs. So, Jonathan, after the initial hysteria of the incident, Williams obviously didn't know there was anything wrong with the battery, Correct, but yeah. was there any kind of growing feeling of, of nerves that Jacques' car might uh, not hold together? I think, 
I mean, I think certainly those last 20 odd laps to the finish were much longer than to the to the mental perception than your usual 20 odd laps of Grand Prix racing around Therese would be. But uh, I think once we sort of settled and once Jack got comfortable with, with where the car was and how the car was, I don't think so. Into, but, but I think, I mean, I don't think so in terms of anything that we could understand more than what we knew. Uh, I think just probably naturally the emotions and the stress of knowing that, right, this has now swung into being totally yours to lose. Because of course, if you'd have DNF'd, then uh, the championship would have been Michael's and that would have been a very interesting scenario of how the FIA would have reacted. Uh, much easier to strip some body of runner-up than it is to strip some body of being world champions. So it would have been interesting. So I think probably, it, I, mean, I mean, and again, everyone that was part of that team comes at these situations with their own experiences and their own emotions as, as their own mashup, so to speak. So, I mean, I, I remember feeling nervous. I mean, they were certainly very long laps. I mean, it was a little bit like Montoya being in the lead after the, after the pit stops had wrapped at Monaco in 2003 and how cruel Monaco has been to Williams down the years. And literally every one of those last Monaco laps after the pit stop felt like it lasted about eight minutes or something. That meant that was Chinese water torture, that 2003 final stint of Monaco. So, but I mean, I don't think we had any sort of hard evidence once Jack sort of got comfortable and once the pace was there and we knew that we simply didn't, I mean, where was the nearest threat? I mean, I guess the nearest threat was Irvine, who I think was running fit. So of course we had, uh, we had a series of, I guess, what you could call friendly sort of, we had two McLarens and uh, one uh, Benetton. And then I don't think Gerhard was going to get involved in any negative way so I think we're pretty happy with where we were we just had to wait it out let's talk about those friendlies just behind because Villeneuve said that by this point he didn't care about winning the race and it's a good job too because unbeknown to everyone else in the team including apparently co-founder Patrick Head uh, Frank Williams had done a deal with Ron Dennis before the race so before we get into this let's hear from Patrick as he explains to us how and when he learned about this deal I was actually quite annoyed because Ron Dennis had come along to Frank and said, if you're in a position where you are going to win the championship, then please let us win the race. And Frank, I didn't find out until the middle of the race, Frank uh, had agreed with Ron and halfway through that race, when after Michael had gone out and Jack was in effect in the lead, uh, Frank gave the instruction from the back of the garage that we were to tell Jack to let the McLarens pass. And uh, I was very angry about that because I don't think you ever give, a ra give away a race win. And in effect, in effect, it gave McLaren the sort of start, you've got to remember that they won the championship next year out with the car essentially, uh, you know, overseen by by uh, Adrian Newey. And um, I didn't agree with Frank at all. Um, and um, so Frank and I had a few strong words in the back of the garage at that time. But Frank told me, uh, in effect, I'm the boss. Um, you know, you carry out my, my instructions. So it was a it was a moment of tension between Frank and myself. 
Okay, Jonathan, did you know about this deal at the time? And did you witness Frank and Patrick discussing it mid-race? Yes, yes. (laughs) Okay, I just want to say, we're talking about something that happened 23 years ago. All of us, myself, my father and Patrick, are all kind of out of the game now. And I love both of them. So I can only sort of talk about my own experiences. And I note that both in the clip, and I've seen, uh, and I've seen like on, uh, I've seen Patrick, I think on a recent Sky thing, I think on Race to Perfection, I, I say that he wasn't made aware by my father until mid-race. So as I said earlier, I watched the first, I, I, I can remember the number, I watched the first nine laps at turn one. And uh, it's about, I don't know, it's the better part of a five minute walk from term one, because it's quite an intimate complex arrays. It's not a particularly long walk from term one back to the F1 paddock. And I walked through those turnstiles and the avenue between the motorhomes on the right and then the trucks on the left backed up to the pit garages was a ghost town. And I turned down one of our trucks and there is Ron Dennis. And he's sort of on tiptoes hovering looking in the back door of our garage. Now, obviously he can't go down the front because it is just a wash with cameras. So he's obviously trying to get somebody's attention. And of course, the garage entrance meanders somewhat. So you're not going to get much line of sight. So he sees me and he literally just grabs me and he literally shouted into my ear three times in a row, tell your father, this does not work if Hakkinen is stuck behind Frentzen. He needs to let Mika go now. And that was lap nine. So there was maybe, so I, I literally went, okay. So, and, and I can't remember, I, I don't think he kind of, I think he kind of like sent me on my way pretty quickly, but he, he shouted that at me three times into my ear. And I literally came into the garage. And as we said earlier, was presented with my father's part of the garage, just a sea of people. I'm a pretty polite guy, but I think I literally pushed people over like uh, bowling pins that day to get to my father. I mean, I was, alert enough to know that sort of his hearing's better I think on the uh on the left hand side because he's got this thing about in the in the days of, of, of clockwise racing circuits his right ear is a little bit worse than his left I pulled the uh the headset off and I literally told him that and I said Ron's outside and he says this doesn't work if Hakkinen is stuck behind Frentzen he wants Frentzen to let Hakkinen go now and so that was lap 9 10 or 11 or something so all I can say, Dad and Patrick, is that that happened. And I don't know who told who what and who told who when, but that was my kind of look at it. And then I did obviously see throughout the race lots of twos and throws uh, from Patrick to the pit wall and James Robinson, who was like running the pit wall for us back then. It was probably one of the races where a lot more discussion went on between the hierarchy than normal. But that was my part of it. So I don't want to get involved in like, if, if, because I know Patrick says that he was only aware of an agreement mid-race. I was aware of one by lap nine or lap 10, or let's, let's call it lap 10 or 11, a couple of minutes it took me to walk back to the pits or the few minutes it took me to walk back to the pits. So yeah, there was, there was something going on. And uh, I got to say, I would much rather have won the race, you know, because you've got to be selfish in this game as well. And I will say that just because nobody, this is probably a story that's not public and it's a tiny one, but absolutely lovely Yorkshireman called Stuart Prattley, a Williams lifer. He's still there. He's, uh, he was Jacques Villeneuve's number one mechanic. And I think he, he, he became factory based a year or two after that, I think. 
his win tally of, of mechanic and cars stands at 39. And he's a bit miffed he didn't get to the magic 40 race wins as being a number uh, as being a mechanic on Grand Prix cars. So he's a bit miffed as well. So there's so there's Patrick and the Stewart, so uh, who actually were a little bit miffed that we didn't actually win that race. So uh, the, the whole thing is you know, is obviously a bit odd and a bit unprecedented in some ways. You know, two teams, especially two giants of of F1 at the time, as as Williams and McLaren were, you know, championship contending, race winning teams, to effectively be working together. But I think you have to set the backdrop against this yes. is also the time of, you know, Ferrari and, and the FIA um, and, and F1, you know, and the, being in this negotiation against the, well, not against, but it was sort of you had Ken Tyrrell, Ron Dennis yes. and, yeah. and Frank Williams on one side on the, you know, lo lobbying together for a, a yeah. different and better commercial terms against yeah. Ferrari. Um, and I think, Johnny, you, you, you're about to probably back me up here, but I, I imagine this was very much a, we got a buddy up here to try and yeah. beat Ferrari. They certainly, and I, I was going to bring Ken into it, but you beat me. They were the three rebels. They were certainly, as you say, aligned and pulling in a different direction on many of the sporting and technical and commercial things. And I remember in the paddock after the race, I was able to get hold of Ron Dennis for about two or three minutes. I managed, I mean, I could see him because obviously he just had a one-two. So there was a lot of interest around him, but I did manage to hover a little bit because I still hadn't quite put it all together. And I did just say, I said, hi, I did pass that message on. I hope it worked because I wasn't involved after I passed the message on. And he gave me this sort of smile and he went, the good guys won. That was what he said. The good guys won. So I think that backs up what you were saying, Karun, that there was certainly a bit of a them and us. There was McLaren, Tyrrell and Williams. And then there was sort of the uh, agendas sort of elsewhere that were perhaps pushing against one another. And of course, that spilled out into some form of competition or, or it spilled out into the competition on track. So, yeah, it's an awful lot going on in this one weekend. Yeah, we make no apologies for uh, the depth we're going into. But yeah, Ron said that uh, quote on the record to reporters as well after this. Um, so yeah, he wasn't exactly... The good guys won. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. Okay, I didn't know that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, now, as, as far as I'm aware, Villeneuve has never acknowledged this deal outright in public. He did mention at the time that the McLarens had stayed out of the fight earlier on, and therefore he was happy to let them through at the end. In that F1 DVD interview we mentioned earlier, he said, I wasn't paying attention to them and the pit didn't tell me that they were catching. I didn't realise until the last few corners when Hakkinen was suddenly in my mirrors and that was a bit of a shock. But it wasn't only at Williams where there was internal strife. We mentioned earlier that the way McLaren timed their, their pit stops to stay out of Villeneuve's way meant Coulthard jumped Hakkinen. And in the closing stages, Ron Dennis wanted to swap those places back. Coulthard says in his book that when he got the order from team manager Dave Ryan, uh, DC says, we had a fairly heated conversation that lasted for many laps. He initially refused to move over, but he then says, uh, I was told words to the effect of, David, the team has given an instruction, and if you don't move over, you are seriously compromising your position within the team. I have to be honest, it sounded very much like you're going to get fired if you don't. Coulthard says he went to see Ron after the race where he was told of the agreement made with Williams beforehand and that Ron felt it was honourable to put Hakkinen back ahead. But DC says it seemed absurd to me and he pointed out that he'd not been made aware of any of this beforehand. 
He also felt it was another example of McLaren showing favoritism to Hakkinen, which Coulthard felt there was an undercurrent of ever since he joined the team. So, Karun, did DC have a point in all this, or was it fair enough for McLaren to want to swap the cars back to give Hakkinen his first win? I think DC had a point, um, which was underlined with a big, bold marker when we got to Adelaide. That's how we got to Melbourne for the opening Grand Prix the following year, didn't we? Yeah. Um, and yeah. It, it basically you know, it happened again. It happened and, again. Yeah, it happened and, again. And, and from that, you know, from these two races in a row where DC had to effectively give up a win for, for Mika, um, the balance of performance never really swung back until Mika's 2001 season where he basically checked out um, and was on his way out of Formula 1. So... Um, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, David had a point. I think now with the passage of time and in hindsight, when he looks back at it, he he probably recognises and everyone soften, softens up a little bit, don't they, within the team. Um, they, they probably all acknowledge now that there was some favouritism towards Mika, um, which they were never, ever going to tell him or, or acknowledge to him uh, at that time. So it was a bit of a shame for DC, but, um, you know, it, it's it's one of those things as a driver, if you get a radio call saying you're effectively going to get sacked if you don't do this, he had, he had to do it. You know, he had, he had no choice. Um, you know, and, and that's the reality of it. We didn't have radios at Brazil, 1981. So that's the only close Williams example of that. But my father did, <laughs> I think my father did Doc Carlos Reutemann's uh, salary for that month, I think, because he didn't oblige that team order, which was, this clear sort of arrangement they had in terms of if we're running one and two and the car in third is this much behind and Alan is in second, he gets the win. And uh, and it was just all always pit boards then. So yeah, we kind of had, had the same thing, but Carlos at that stage sort of, he did ignore us. Since we've digressed, shall I give you another little Damon text update? Okay, yes. So, yes. <laughs> I, I asked him, do you remember losing two tens to Katayama? Uh, the last corner, which Walkinshaw claimed would have put you on pole. He says, I think so. Bridgestones and a perfect balance thanks to a genius driver. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Well, he was right. He did say that he pushed for more ambitious Bridgestone tyres that, that weekend and they clearly did the job in qualifying at least. Now, Hakkinen was delighted to get his first win, but he's admitted on his own podcast with Mark Gallagher that he had mixed feelings about this race. He said uh, that pure happiness uh, of winning a Grand Prix didn't come in the way of, yeah, I was quickest out there, the car was fastest, we did it. It was not like that. It was a little gift. Let's get back to Schumacher and Villeneuve because after the race, Jacques gave a pretty famous quote in the press conference where he said, maybe Michael had his eyes closed or somehow his hands slipped on the steering wheel. I was surprised he left the door open. But once I was inside, it was a matter of time before he decided to turn in on me. Schumacher took a very different view initially. As Carew mentioned earlier, Ross Braun said that Schumacher got back to the pits screaming that we had to get Villeneuve disqualified. But even once he'd seen the footage, and in Ross's words, uh, went ashen-faced when he realised what he'd done, in public, Schumacher said, I was not at fault. I would do exactly the same again. Jacques was being optimistic, but it worked for him. I was very surprised by what he did, but he had nothing to lose. I would have done the same in his position. If I had not been there, he probably would have been in the gravel, but I guess he was counting on me being there. He was using me a little bit as his break. 
once it's all said and done and Jack's got the championship, Jonathan, did anyone really care what Michael was saying after the race? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think uh, I think there was just, I mean, I think we were all ready to go, I mean, into party mode at sort of Renault's, uh, at sort of Renault's pleasure being their last Grand Prix in Formula One. So the fact that we had a championship in the bag through the sort of thrilling Grand Prix that we achieved it. I don't think anyone was too sort of bothered. No, I mean, I, but I mean, I think. But Johnny, you, you, yeah. you actually were privy to a, to a, to a nice moment between the, yeah, I mean, the two contenders, weren't you, after the race? I mean, so I, I mean, I, again, as, as you know, I, I get along very well with Jacques and I, about two or so hours after the race, I hadn't actually seen him, which not the most surprising thing because you're going to be busy at that moment in time. You just won the world championship. But I kind of asked around and somebody said he's in the back of the Rothmans motorhome. So we had three mo, we had Renault, Williams and Rothmans. And uh, and I kind of went in there and I think somebody said he would love to see you. You must go in. So I went into the back of the motorhome and he was there with Craig Pollock and one other friend of theirs. And it's the back room of an old style motorhome. It's like a wraparound sofa. And I think I gave him a hug and we, and we kind of and I kind of like thought it would be a private moment. So I tried to excuse myself. And they wouldn't let me go. They were like, nah, come on, drink with us, sit down and relax. And they're already getting very happy. So we'd been in there five minutes chatting. And then the Rothmans guy knocked on the door and said, Jack, Michael's here. Okay, so so Michael and Corinna Schumacher came in. And they must have been with us for about 20 minutes. And it was the friendliest sort of, it was all smiles. There was, it was all just like, well done. It was a really great season. It was tough and it was a tough race. And go, you know, you're a world champion now. And yeah, I'll get you back. And then Jacques and Michael, as you can imagine, was sort of immaculately sort of presented as a driver would be. And Jacques was quite, well, disheveled for his standards by this stage. I remember Jacques saying, hey, dude, come on, you can take your cap off in here and all this kind of. Michael's like, no, I'm leaving my cap on and uh, like perfectly straight. And, and it was and it, and everyone was just really happy to be there. It's like just like it was almost like after like a, like a big friendly sort of match or something that had no agenda or. And it was just a really sort of sweet 20 minutes between those two. And there was no friction. There was no resentment. It was just, it was just two guys. You got the impression really respected and appreciated the moment that was sort of happening uh, around them. And then there was nothing out of Michael at all, other than just sort of uh, almost fondness in a way for Jacques, that Jacques had actually won the world championship and, uh, there was, I mean, and again, it was, it was a real sort of like privileged moment to be part of. It was completely serendipitous that I was there. And like I said, I, I tried to get out of there. I thought I would kind of like leave Jacques to it. I mean, he might just want to decompress and wind down with his closest at that point, but they, he wouldn't have anything of it. And uh, yeah, and no, it was just, uh, no, it, it was just, and it was, there was nothing more to say. I mean, there was nothing more to say at all. There was no sort of angst or friction between them whatsoever. And that's a great moment because uh, it was reported. Uh, Autosport magazine did a uh, Autosport website did a feature in 2017 where Jacques talked about serving behind the hotel bar with Michael later that night. Um, but the uh, unfortunately there was friction after that because um, Jacques was disappointed that pictures of that ended up in the German press, which he felt was Michael trying to uh, rebuild his image but Schumacher had more immediate concerns uh, after that because his comments about the incident went down very badly high up at Ferrari. Luca de Montezemolo flew to her F that night and caught Schumacher out 
when he said to him, what have you done? Uh, Fiat Honorary President Gianni Agnelli said that what Schumacher did was hideous, but he said everyone makes mistakes and Schumacher never made more than one a year. But he said the real problem was that Schumacher was so stubborn to take 48 hours before admitting he made a mistake and he criticised him for saying he would do the same again. That apology that took 48 hours to come out came in a Maranello press conference where Schumacher said, I miscalculated Villeneuve's attack, Jacques won, and that took so much away from the Tifosi and the team. I am a human being, sometimes I make mistakes too, not very often, but this was a big one. People do not expect me to make a mistake. More serious things have happened in motor racing than what happened on Sunday. In future, my reaction when faced with a similar situation will be different. Now, Karun, Michael was revered in Italy even by this point, just two years into driving for Ferrari. So do you think he would have been surprised to get this much backlash effectively from from home, from the home team? I think so. Um, I mean, you only have to look up image of that of that press conference don't you it's just faces like thunder and you know there were lots of rumors about how they made all these t-shirts and caps and flags saying you know michael schumacher world champion 1997 which which obviously all ended up in the bin somewhere although well 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 a, a rumor do you know who's got one no go on and who wore it all sunday night in jerez jock clear no oh, really? way jock clear uh, yeah well Jock Jock says that Eddie sneaked him one. So Vili Verba had a, a bit like the because uh, I, I saw this on YouTube uh, a few weeks ago. It's topical that when you, as you imagine, when the Super Bowl's over, the winning team within minutes have got T-shirts and caps on, saying with their logos. So of course, which means there must be another pile of boxes somewhere. Yeah, which you've got yeah. all the and lo- um, where do all the losers stuff go? And apparently, Ferrari did have boxes. And I think Eddie Irvine, so Jock Cleard turned up at the party on Sunday night wearing a Michael Schumacher three to, with the three stars, because you know, that's how Michael's caps were done, weren't they? they a star yeah. was added. So Jock Clear has a Michael Schumacher 1997 world champions cap somewhere. I tell you what, those caps, I mean, they must be worth a fortune now if you stuck them on eBay. They'll be, uh, oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. yeah. Um, but yeah, no, just going back to it, you know, you just have to look at the pictures of that press conference that Michael had to do. You know, it's 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 proper naughty schoolboy lined up in front of the, a room full of uh, of journalists who you really don't want to talk to at that point. Um, you know, the the fate you you could not imagine more grumpy looking faces. Yeah. Um, yeah, is just uh, I I do think he was caught off guard with how much backlash there was actually from yeah. that. But in some ways. When you actually look at the flip side of it, yeah, he got excluded from from the championship. Um, but being excluded for finishing second in the championship, do you think he actually cared about that? You know, it almost mm. seemed like a bit of a you know a non penalty in some ways, didn't it? Yeah, maybe in the moment, but I would doubt seven world championships and ninety one Grand Prix later, and just the no. But even in the yeah. moment, Johnny, I, I do wonder. Think- yeah, because I, I, you know he was already a double world champion. He he was yeah. there to finish first. Yes, um, and he didn't. I just thought maybe sort of the, I mean, as you said, maybe the embarrassment and the uncomfortable emotions that came in the day or two afterwards. I mean, maybe, maybe. there, maybe. But I mean, I think in in the bigger picture, and I agree with you. I mean, if you know, he's he's already a double world champion, it's all about winning for him. I mean, being being I mean, being sort of runner up. And again, I don't. 
I don't really recall much emotion from our side that Heinz Harold ended up as runner-up in the championship because if you look at the table of points for 1997, I think it says Jacques Villeneuve world champion on, is it 84 points or something? And I think Heinz Harold's runner-up on 42 and it, uh, it, looks, it, looks, it, it looks somewhat distorted when you read it as a piece of paper. He probably still had to get the uh, bonus check from your dad, though. So, you know, I'm sure he quite enjoyed having that extra little bonus. Probably did, yeah. I just want to, because again, just from, just again, because you can expect what was happening with us the week that you were just describing in terms of how difficult things or how pressurised things perhaps got on the Ferrari side. And then, and again, just to sort of talk about just what a, a great person and just what a generous guy Jacques was. And then so... Uh, we won the championship on Sunday. We sort of all dragged ourselves back through Luton Airport sometime on Monday afternoon. But by Friday, by Friday lunchtime, which was Halloween, a group of us, which was Jacques' core people, his mechanics, his engineers, not all of whom could make it, myself and his, and his press girl, were all on a private plane out of Farnborough, arranged for and paid for by Jacques, flown into Nice, uh, he- transferred by helicopter from Nice to Monte Carlo, all put up in a sea view room each in the, well, the Lowe's or whatever the hotel's called now, and then told to present ourselves in reception in fancy dress. And we were basically greeted by Jacques dressed as a Roman centurion and Craig Pollock dressed as a uh, as Caesar, and then, wa- and then uh, walked through Monte Carlo to a restaurant he'd hired for the biggest Halloween championship celebration party. And then the following afternoon, repeat the process, helicopter back to Nice and then private jet back to Farnborough. And that's what he did for his core crew a week later, which is sort of, you know, quite a big thing. I mean, it's kind of nice to get a watch, but still, I think he kind of went for his like core part of Williams. I mean, he just, I mean, of course, he couldn't bring all four or 500 of us down, but I'm... Um, uh, but for his sort of core group of Williams, his, his race engineer, his data engineer, his mechanics, his media girl, myself, his sort of personal sort of uh, like sort of operations manager. I mean, about seven or eight of us on this plane. And uh, I mean, I don't know of too many drivers who have gone to that extent in terms of reaching out to say thank you to the people that were most immediately around them to win a world championship. And uh he, he, and also he wasn't presumptuous enough to book this particular restaurant until he won the championships. So when he tried to book it on, I don't know, Tuesday or Wednesday, the owner being a good family friend said, uh, I can't really, I've already taken a lot of bookings for Halloween, but because it's you, Jacques, I'll call them up and I'll tell them I've just booked a children's party in the other half of the restaurant. And he called them back and said, miraculously, Jacques, all of these kind of like Monegasque elders have all cancelled. And, and, and to be fair, he wasn't far wrong in describing it as a children's party because it certainly kind of it, it certainly had sort of the lack of discipline of a children's party. So, um, uh, yeah, and bless him, he was he was by about four o'clock in the morning in Jimmy's nightclub. He was uh, Jacques was pretty much gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah, but we've got all the time in the world on this show for stories about what a top bloke Jack Villeneuve is. Certainly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now the uh, the stewards on the day at Jerez did investigate the collision and deemed it a racing incident, but the FIA took a dim view, as we've hinted at already. Schumacher was summoned uh, to a hearing. There was talk of a ban for 1998, but in the end, all that happened was, as we mentioned, he lost uh, second place in the 97 standings. Max Mosey said, although the act was apparently deliberate, it was instinctive and not premeditated. 
The World Motorsport Council has given careful consideration to banning Schumacher for 1998, but has conclu concluded that to do so would be futile. Max said the reason a ban the following season wouldn't work was because he felt any driver in the heat of the moment with a championship on the line would be willing to take a punishment that affected the following season if it meant he could win the championship there and then. He was, as we, we hinted at earlier, that the more difficult decision would have been excluding Schumacher if he won the championship, but Max was adamant that the punishment would have been the same, and he said that was the fundamental point behind stripping him of second place. Schumacher said the verdict was something I have to accept. Uh, Villeneuve said he was expecting something more severe because that punishment doesn't mean anything. Let's hear another good quote from Damon Hill, the victim of Adelaide 94, because Damon pointed out that what would really be instinctive for a racing driver would be to avoid a collision. And he said that the penalty was not the kind of heavy sanction we were promised by Max in the driver's briefing at Jerez. And on comparisons with Adelaide 94, Damon added, at least Michael is consistent. <laughs> so, Corinne, we, we've talked about it quite a lot, really. Was the punishment fair enough? And, and was, it, was Max right that if you start talking about bans for the following season and that sort of thing, that doesn't actually necessarily solve the problem of acting as a deterrent for the future? Because I also think it's key that by this point, we'd had collisions deciding the championship in 89, 90, 94 and 97. So Max clearly felt that it was time to stamp this out. Yeah, you're right there. I think there is a, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I think they were right not to ban him for 98 because yeah. that would have been bad for Formula One on the whole, you know, not having Michael in the fight for 98 would, would not have been good for the sport. Um, you know, whether they could have used um you know a different sort of financial penalty perhaps or 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 i don't know found some other metric to penalize him for 97 um is debatable but yeah it, it's one of those things right where you know as a driver you often know when you go into the last race of the season if you do something bad there's a high chance you're going to get away with it because what are they going to do? Give you a grip penalty for the next race? Well, that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> um, yeah, there is an element of driver psychology, certainly across all championships, whether you're in touring cars or Formula Ford or whatever, that at the last race, you are likely to get away with more than than you would have done previously. So, uh, I mean, listen, in this instance, Michael wasn't thinking of that, right? He, he made an instinctive move, um, a bit like, you could say Monaco 2006 as well, you know, the qualifying yeah. thing where he sort of did that clumsy bit of parking. Um, but again, it was this, it was an instinct, but then he didn't do it properly and it was all a bit clumsy. Uh, and, and this, the Heret 97 seemed a little bit like that, you know, just, just a bit, bit clumsy in the end. You know, for a guy of, you know, you got to add a clumsy move for a guy of supreme talent who, Especially in that period, you know, you just you only have to go on YouTube and watch, you know, Schumacher qualifying laps from '96 at San Marino or Monaco in that Ferrari, and you just look at the supreme talent of this guy, and then you look at the sort of other clumsy moves that happen, and you go, there's this disconnect, isn't there? It's like two different people. Yeah, he was rarely a man incapable of precision. Over the years that followed, Schumacher mentioned on more than one occasion, including actually when he retired in 2006, that if there was one thing from his career he wished he could undo, it was this incident. 
Uh, in a book he released in 2003, he said, I made a big, stupid, naive mistake. I didn't expect Villeneuve to attack me there, and yet I left him space to try. When he caught me out, the anger at having made a mistake made me react instinctively, but it was too late. But Schumacher wasn't the only party summoned by the FIA in this week, as McLaren and Williams had a case to answer over supposed race fixing. They were cleared of any wrongdoing, with Mosley saying the World Council was quite satisfied that there was no arrangement between Williams and McLaren to fix the outcome. What did happen was that Williams approached McLaren and several other teams, asking them not to interfere in the fight between Villeneuve and Schumacher, and this they agreed to do. When it came to the end of the race, Williams's sole concern was that Villeneuve should finish in the points, and they reminded him of this and were desperate he should not fight the McLarens in his damaged car. So Jonathan, I have to ask, how did Williams and McLaren get away with this? And when the teams were summoned, was there any concern at Williams that you could be in trouble? Well, I'm concerned that I just snitched on them about 20 minutes ago with my Ron <laughs> Dennis, which I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, again, you're probably, I, I'm probably not the best person to sort of reference that. That would have been something between my father, Patrick, probably our most senior, like race team people, uh, Chief, uh, chief engineer, team manager, and uh, the gentleman who would have been the in-house lawyer at Williams. Then I, I, I don't, I, I, but usually, sort of like where the smoke is fire. I just don't really recall much smoke from that time. I don't recall anyone being overly concerned because uh, I mean, because I think our sort of position. I mean, how could you really reverse it? I guess. I mean, I'm not quite sure what sort of penalty could have been applied to that. And uh, I mean, I guess it probably would have been a fine. But no, I. And again, it probably was something along the lines of what we touched upon earlier, that there was a bit of a rebellion in the sport at the time involving uh, those two teams, along with Tyrrell, ourselves and McLaren. So perhaps it was somewhat part of that in terms of it being a big part of an even bigger picture. But I certainly, I mean, again, I, was, I, was, I just wasn't involved enough at the time to sort of be, I mean, like I said, I accidentally got involved in whatever was going on just by trying to walk into our garage at the time when Ron Dennis was trying to get a message in there. And uh, uh, no, I, but I certainly don't, I mean, obviously it was, it was a championship. I was so excited to, so, and because of the, I was there, the Jacques factor. So I think I would have picked up if there was any serious vibe about that. So I don't think there was too much concern. There was a process to go through, but I don't think there was too much concern. Good job they didn't call you as a witness. It is a good job they didn't call you. So just, yeah, I don't know whether you could change, you know, you certainly can't change championship results 23 years later because if, if they do that based on what I've said here, then we want the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix. We'll do a trade with them. Because <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite funny. I think before Nico Rosberg became a serial Grand Prix winner with Mercedes, he did sort of refer to himself quite open. I'm not too sure whether he ever discussed this with Fernando, but he actually did. Nico was actually going around calling himself in the winter of sort of in around 2009 when the story broke. I'm the winner of the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix. Um, we actually have that particular car in the museum, or Williams do now. And actually, I would always tell that story. I'd say this is kind of the true winner of the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix, this particular car here, because... Can you really can you really accept the car that won it as being you know, so, uh... yeah I think you're safe I think it's long, long enough ago and uh, we're safe. anyway yeah, if, I think we're safe if any podcast can rewrite the entire F1 history from this era it would certainly be us but let's finish on 
what's hopefully a positive note and, and pretty route one, actually, Karun. Quite, quite simply, where does this rank for you among the great F1 title deciders? It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Um, I, I was thinking about this before the podcast, and I, I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge from the year I was born, which is 1984, um, and my favourite seasons as you know, championship battles and and as a season for all the, the layers are 86, 97. 2003 um, and 2007, I think, are, are probably four of the best championship seasons. Um, and, and so, yeah, this is this is right up there. You know, if if you had to, if you had to pick across the history of F1 as well, you know, even going before that, you could argue 76 maybe. Um, but but it's it's I would argue that this is in. It's got to be in the top three. I'm going to say it's definitely. It's right, and uh, it's got to be in the top three in terms of absolute drama for the season finale. Uh, what do you reckon, Jonathan? I have a feeling that yeah. maybe, maybe you'll be slightly <laughs> biased based on personal experience. Yeah, you I was, were there, I, so it must be incredible. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to come right out with that and say, and I think I'll kind of, I guess, I'll finish where I started in that, from a personal point of view, because of the age that I'm at and was back then, it was the only time I was present at one of the events that sealed, whether it be a driver's or a constructor's world championship for Williams. So for me, it is my personal favourite, but I agree with Karun. I mean, it certainly does stack up there with all of those other greats. I mean, uh, Adelaide 86 is one that I'm very obviously familiar with, and that was where we were on the losing side. Uh, the 2003 season, we were in the mix, but of course we didn't quite get that one brought home. And then, I mean, I'm also very fond of sort of the, uh, the Alan Jones era, I mean, I think the sort of 1980, and I think more the 1981 season is a big story as well. I mean, so, and 82, of course, I mean, just the way that season was so open and we were able to prevail in the drivers with Rosberg. So, but personally, in terms of a championship with its, and in terms of how the championship played out and was decided, for me, it is 1997 and to the point, Jerez. And we still can't believe you missed it, Glenn. Appalling, <laughs> just appalling. I've I've made up for it since I've watched it many many times. And uh, the thing I love about it though is not just that obviously my favourite driver won the championship. Not just that it was decided with a controversial collision, but those those first forty seven laps are incredible. It's those two guys going for the championship yeah. flat out. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Are, are both drivers. Well, F one F one put the um, the entire race out, didn't they? During early lockdown, I remember Johnny and I were we were watching. You were it, watching it. Yeah, and we yeah. were texting back and forth, like this is incredible. Even though we knew how it had unfolded, what had happened. Oh yeah, it's there's still... so much of it. You 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 get yeah. goosebumps and reliving the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, Johnny and I we we loved watching it back, didn't we? And I think it was just I don't know who just said it because uh, but it was a case of I think it's the championship decider, and it is the two protagonists absolutely flat out and one finishing behind the other there's no mathematical equation where one of them finishing behind the other serves too well I mean I guess in some ways it shares a lot of attributes not all with Japan 89 but obviously there was another race after that and it could have carried over into that race but in terms of the two guys being out front and pushing each other to the absolute limit and I mean yeah I mean so I think from those points of view it is an absolutely thrilling race to watch and yeah, it's just, I mean, it's still been fascinating to me today, just how many backstories it has. I mean, just going over them and reliving them. I mean, it's just, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, it's incredible. Obviously, I could talk about this race 
forever, but we should leave it there. Thanks so much to Karun and, of course, to Jonathan for sharing so many stories from inside your dad's great team. And uh, thank you as well to Damon Hill for the little cameos via text message. We've got one more regular episode to go in this series and then we're on to our double header season finale where we'll be taking your questions. So time is running out to submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s to ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. And if you think we deserve a five-star review, you can leave a question there as well. Our final regular episode is another classic. We're heading to the 2005 Japanese Grand Prix to revisit all the drama created by a mixed up grid at Suzuka, including a last lap pass for the win. 